Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. Chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 1. And the word of the Lord declares, Now Moses was keeping the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the, mount, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of the fire in the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to the Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author John Piper once wrote, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all things that money will buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you will be impressed with a streetlight. If you've never heard thunder and lightning, you will be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back, if, if you turn your back on the greatness and the majesty of God, you'll have fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. Who is God? Is or what is God. It really seems like a simple question. It seems like a really straightforward question. It seems like a question that we should be able to answer pretty easily. I mean, it's just three words long. Who is God? I mean, how hard can it be? 
I mean, it's a question that even a child can understand. It's a, a question that a child themselves can ask. In fact, most children at some point do ask the question, who is God? It's a foundational question. It's a question that, that people have been asking since the beginning of humanity. A question that's been pondered by theologians and scientists and philosophers and laborers alike. It's a question that has been studied and discussed by the very brightest of minds and the simplest of children. It's a question that's been asked probably a billion times or maybe even trillion times ever since man began. Who is God? And you know what's interesting is in our information and technology-driven world, in this fast-paced, get-it-right-now, instant gratification, Google search world that we live in, it seems that we should be able to easily answer this question. In fact, many people might feel that we should be able to answer this question in a two-minute YouTube video or a 280-character tweet. But really, is the question of who God is, is it really that simple? The truth is, no, it's not. It's not simple. It should be, but it's not. And the reason why it's not simple, it has nothing to do with the fact that we can answer the question. The reason why it's not simple is, is, is not that we can't answer the question. The reason why it's not simple is because everyone seems to have a perspective or an opinion on who God is. Everyone seems to have their own picture of God. I mean, if I was to, to tell you, I want you to take a moment and think about God the Father. When I say the word God the Father and ask you to think about Him, right? many of you, whether you know it or not, will automatically have a picture come to your mind. There will be an image of God that pops into your heads. And what's interesting is if I, I ask most people, right? if you ask most people about this picture of God, most people, when you ask them who God is, most of the time you will find they will begin their answers with phrases like, I think God is like, I believe God is like, I imagine God is like. And what I want you to notice is that the almost universal application, most people will begin to answer this question from their own personal perspective, from their own personal opinion. The beginning of their answers invariably is always starting with the word, I. I think. I believe. I expect. I think God is like this. I think God is like that. I believe God is this way. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not criticizing. I think that it's important that people have opinions about God. I think it's important that people think about God. I think it's important people have strong beliefs about God. What concerns me and what gives me pause, though, is where do those beliefs come from? What are the influences that inform those opinions and the beliefs about God? Because the fact of the matter is, is most people, including m many Christians who profess faith in Christ, they have opinions and beliefs about God that simply don't originate with God himself. Most of the pictures, most of the opinions, most of the beliefs that people have about God are a composition. They're an amalgamation, right? They're a composition of some biblical elements to be sure, but they are also end up being combined with other elements and other influences. Influences like our culture, influences like our upbringing and our, our personal emotions. For example, when people, when, when most people think about God the Father, right? 
most of the time they will think of a very old man with a long beard. How many of you have ever thought that image of God, of God the Father? Right. I mean, I think all of us at some point have had that image pop into our head. But understand, this is not a biblical picture of who God is. Because the Bible never describes God in those terms. The Bible says, never says that he's an old man with a beard. The Bible describes him as glorious and radiant and terrifying and awe-inspiring, but never as some old man with a beard and a long robe. But this picture is a result of culture. It's the result of our Western culture. Because for, for hundreds of years, we've been painting pictures of God like this. Pictures of God in our minds come from classical arts. Right? They also come from popular arts. Right? We're all familiar with these. If you read that one, you'll probably end up laughing, and that's a distraction to me, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. The thing is, is you know, our understanding oftentimes of what God is, really comes from, from outside. The understanding of God being this old man is not, is, is not biblical. He was never a man. He, was, he, he, he is not a material being. He's a spirit. And this picture that we have here of this old man in a beard is really influenced by, by Greek mythology. Right? This is an image ripped off from Zeus. Western culture is... is Influenced by Greek culture. And so these images come from that. And so our culture, ancient culture, and even modern culture play a huge part right, of the, the, the picture that we have of God. Now, the second influence that brings us uh, our picture of God is how we're raised. How we are raised profoundly influences how we see God, especially our own relationship to our dads or our fathers. Our own earthly father can shape how we see God. So if our earthly father is aloof and disinterested in us as children, then we can see God as distant and uncaring. If our dads have a temper and mean and angry and bitter, we can see God in that same light. We can see God as this angry authoritarian who's always looking to smite us. If we see our dads as untrustworthy and hypocritical, we can see God himself that way. Our upbringing has a huge influence in how we see God. And then the third important influence is our emotions. Okay, because let's face it, as rational as we think we are, all right, because we all think we're rational, especially as guys, okay? As rationally as we think that we are, we have very strong feelings about lots of things, especially about God. Most of us have strong feelings about who God is. And for many people, right, the God that they believe in is not shaped so much by this, the Word of God. It's shaped by what fits inside the framework of their emotions. Many people say, well, you know, a loving God would never send anybody to hell in spite of what the Bible teaches. Well, why is that? Why do you believe that? Well, because it just doesn't seem right. It just doesn't feel right. I believe that, that, that everybody was born with a good heart and, and God sending people to hell seems like overkill to me. It seems cruel, so I don't believe a loving God would do that. Other people say, well, I cannot imagine God not wanting people to be happy and fulfilled. I think God wants people to be completely happy. In fact, I think that's the purpose of life is to be happy and, and to find the fulfillment in, in, in my life. And I don't think that God has a problem with being self-focused. I don't think that God has a problem with, with me. As long as I'm looking to be happy and fulfilled, as long as I'm, I'm working on me, then God should be okay with whatever I do regardless of what it is, because I believe that God wants me to be happy and fulfilled. Other people will say that I think that God, you know, 
that God doesn't have a problem with things like abortion or people living together who are not married or, or same-sex attract, I mean, relationships or pornography. Those are just personal choices, and I don't think that God would condemn those kind of behaviors. Why? Why do you believe that? Well, because because a loving and compassionate God, He just understands we are who we are. Our emotions, our feelings can heavily influence our view of God. Now, one of the things... One of the things that, that all of these influences have in common together, all, one of the influences that all of them have in common is these views of God begins with them. Most people view God centered on them. God has to make sense from their own perspective. God has to make sense from their viewpoint. Most people have a man-centered view of God. We start with man we, we start with ourselves, and then we start with our understanding, and we try to extrapolate to God. We try to get God to fit with inside of our understanding and our imaginations. We try to get God to fit within our mental framework. One of the challenges, one of the greatest challenges to answering the question of who God is, is most people's picture of God, most people's understanding of God is man-centered. It's centered on themselves. Their emotions, their upbringings, their culture, their ability to understand their ability to wrap their heads around what God is like. People tend to build their view of God around men. Hence the picture of the old man with a beard. But this is a problem. Because if you begin with man, if you start with man and attempt to try to understand God, you will always, always, always fail to understand God. I want to say that I want to say that again. If you're a note taker, that might be the one note you want to take down today. If you begin with man in an attempt to understand God, you will always fail to understand God. And at best, what you will end up with is legalism. Legalism is this extreme that many people fall into where we follow a bunch of rules, right? On the other hand, the other extreme is where people fall into complete disobedience because we think because of grace that we can do whatever we want to do. We have license to do what we want to do, right? A flawed view of God, a flawed view of who he is always leads to a flawed view of life. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is it leads to man-centered theologies. It leads even to heresy. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, oneness in Unitarian theology are all born out of a man-centered view of God. For Mormons, God is an exalted man. That's where they start. A man who was just like us, except that he kept all the rules, all the Mormon regulations, and became an exalted man by his own efforts. But he is still, right now, flesh and bone, who has limitations in time and both space, in a distant solar system, their concepts of God are centered around man. That, and their older theology fits that. And they believe that because he is a man, that one day then we will be like him. And if we follow all the rules, that we can be exalted men ourselves and be gods ourselves. Right? They created God out of their understanding of men. And then you have the Jehovah's Witnesses who cannot wrap their head around the idea of the triune God. They can't wrap their head around of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so instead, they create their own theology, and then they rewrite their Bible to support their preconceived ideas. 
Their man-centered theology doesn't allow them to really think outside of themselves. And it's the same with oneness religions, like the Jesus name movement or the Jesus name tabernacle. They reject the idea of the Trinity. They believe, yes, Jesus is God, but that Jesus is all God, meaning that Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. They believe that Jesus exists in modes. It's called modalism. And the reason simply is this. They just cannot fathom the mystery of one God in three distinct persons. It just won't fit in their head, and so they worship a false God made in, really in their own image. It's a man-centered point of view. So man-centered theology or man-centered views of God always lead to some sort of error. Now, this error could simply just be a misunderstanding of some of God's attributes, or this error can actually be much more serious than that. Right? It can lead to heretical theology. Right? It can lead us to worship a false god. Our understanding of who God is is really a matter of salvation. Because remember, it's not what you do that saves you. It's what you believe. You see, what you believe about God is actually vital to your salvation. So this is an important question for us to get right. And so we're going to answer this question then of who God is, and we need to commit ourselves. We need to commit ourselves to abandoning all of the man-centered theologies, right? And seek with all of our hearts a God-centered view of God, a biblical view of God. We need to look past what we think. We need to look past what we feel and examine what God actually says he is like, which is entirely the point of this series. This series, who, I mean, God, who is he, is focused on, on all of us doing the very best that we can to set aside our culture and set aside our preconceived ideas about God and then digging into and looking into the word of God to find out who God really is. What is God? Who is God on his own terms? How does he describe himself? What does he say about himself? How does he paint a picture of who he is and how he expects us then to respond and to relate to him in light of that? That's the point of this series. Now, I want you to know the goal of this series isn't to like make you go to sleep with theology, okay? The point of this series is to help you to develop a God-centered, biblically grounded, Christ-exalting view of God. That's my goal. I want to help you to see God, right? I want you to see God in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his splendor. I want to help you to, to get a glimpse of just how awesome and breathtaking and amazing he is. That way you can become hungry. Right? Hungry to know him better, hungry to grow and to worship him more and to love him with all your hearts and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. My goal is to help you to build inside of your head, inside of your heart, a real and accurate theology of who God is so that the truth can then inform your life and your actions as you grow and mature in your walk with Christ. I want you to have an accurate picture of who God is so that you can reject all the false gods who are out there clamoring for your attention. I want you to have an accurate picture of God so that you can fulfill the purpose that God has for you in your life. And the purpose that God has for you in your life is for you to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is your purpose. Your purpose is to glorify God in everything that you do in every part of your life and find your greatest satisfaction and your greatest joy in him. I want to help you to fulfill this purpose by knowing God better. That's the goal of this series. And what I want to begin today is really with just a quick story 
of where God reveals himself to Moses. It's actually one of the greatest pictures of God revealing himself personally to someone in the Bible. It's a story that really can tell us some important things about who God really is. And the story is found in the book of Exodus chapter 3. Now, before we jump into the text, let me just you know, set the context up for you. There's a lot going on at this point in history. God's people, the Israelites or the Hebrews, because of, of a famine, end up moving from their land to Egypt. And at that point, they were just a really big family. But as they moved into the country, they settled and they prospered and God multiplied them and they became a nation. And, and, and as the years went on, a new pharaoh, a new king rose to power in Egypt and he hated the Israelites. He was afraid of them and so he enslaved them. And for 400 years, they were under harsh rule in bondage to, as slaves to, to, to the king. And they continued to multiply and grow as a people. And so the pharaoh decided to try to put an end to this. And so he started killing all the baby Baby kid, baby Israelites, right? If you've read the story about, you know, the, the Pharaoh's decree to, to throw the, the, the newborn babies into the Nile River, right, is actually a precursor of, of, of the plight of Christ. But miraculously, Moses, as a baby, was sent down a river in a basket by his mother, and she, he was retrieved out of the water by Pharaoh's own daughter and found and she found him and saved him. And so Moses then, this Hebrew child, grows up as a prince of Egypt. And he comes to believe that he's actually one of the people to rescue the, the, the Hebrews, right? And in his own efforts, getting ahead of God, he ends up killing an officer, uh, an Egyptian officer. And then he has to flee for his life from Egypt into the desert of Midian, where he has to give up all the wealth and all the toys and all the power and all the luxury, Right? And he has to give up any hope that somehow he might be this, this hero of the people. So in the desert, he finds himself wandering, and then he discovers his wife and marries her and settles down and just decides, I'm going to forget about my old life in Egypt, and I'm just going to be a shepherd. And so we begin in Exodus chapter 3, and verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So Moses has given up on the dream. The dream was, to, was not going to come to fruition. He was not going to be anybody special, he believed. And so he decided to live this life of a simple shepherd, taking care of his father-in-law's his father-in-law's sheep, hoping that one day that he would get to inherit this stuff, right? And then Moses, while he's minding his own business out in the desert, sees this unexplained phenomenon happening. And the next thing you know, he's having a conversation with God himself. We talk about something you didn't plan for during the day. God had revealed himself to Moses in this burning bush, and then God introduces himself. He introduces himself to Moses in terms that he could understand. He said, I am the God of your fathers, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That was how God was known to the people of Israel at that time. He was the God associated with their forefathers. He was the God who spoke to Abraham. He was the God who who kept Isaac from being sacrificed. He was the God who actually wrestled with with Jacob. God was associated to them by, by by their founding patriarchs of the Hebrew nation. That's how he was known. That's how he's identified. He's the God of our fathers. He was known as God or Elohim of the fathers. Elohim, Abraham, Elohim, Isaac, Elohim, Jacob. Elohim was the Hebrew word for God. But understand, that was not his name. Elohim is not a proper name. It just simply means God, generically, like Elohim Baal, which means the God Baal. That's why Elohim was connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how, how, how they knew him. On a side note, there are some people who believe that Elohim was the name of God the Father. They took the Hebrew word and tried to turn it into a proper name, right? But, but it's never been a proper name. Elohim has never, ever been a name. It is a title like doctor or professor or pastor. When God said, I am Elohim your, you know, of your father, God of your father, it's like me saying, I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church. I'm identifying myself by my title and connecting my title to some relationship that you might understand. If you were to ask me, who are you? And I answered, I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church. You would understand what I was talking about because it would tell you something about me. My title, right? Not my name, right? And if someone were to ask you, who are you talking to? You said, the pastor of the First Baptist Church. That's pretty easy for them to understand. Right? It's the same thing here. God tells Moses, I am God, title, right? The God of your fathers. And this makes sense to Moses because he knew God, even if he didn't know God's personal name. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt. And I have heard their cry of their taskmasters. I know they're suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. God says to Moses, I'm the God of your forefathers and I still care about my people. I've seen their suffering and I'm going to do something about it. About it. I'm going to rescue them because I am their God. And guess what? You're going to help me. You're, I'm going to send you. But Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I, Moses said, who am I to do this? You're God. I'm nobody, right? I'm this failed, you know, redeemer, right? I've already like killed somebody, got in trouble for this. I can't do this. I'm just a a shepherd. I'm I'm afraid, right? I'm just a common nobody out here in the deserts. I'm not special. And then God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. You have, you have brought this people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain, 
God said, you're not going to do this by yourself. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be there with you. I'm the God of your forefathers. I took care of those people. I will take care of you. I'm going to help you with this endeavor. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, I want you to understand, this is actually a really reasonable question for Moses to ask here. Because think about this. The God of your fathers, the Elohim of your fathers, is really a pretty generic expression because really anybody could say that. Anybody could say, hey, you know, the God of your father sent me, right? Anybody could say, you know, the God of Abraham sent me. Anybody can make that statement, right? Just like anybody could say, you know, Pastor Sherman, that guy down there, he, he said I could do that, even though I might not have said that, right? Well, who is he? So Moses is asking, right? If I say the God of your father sent me and they want more proof than just that, I, I, I mean, the truth is like, they don't even know me really. I mean, they just think I'm this guy from, you know, from, from Egypt. They might not even trust me. So if I were to ask them, and say to them that God sent me, and they say, who, right? What proof am I going to offer, right? Am I just going to say, you know, God, you know, the God of your fathers? Is, is that what I'm going to say? And so God actually answers his request and tells him, right? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, this is one of my favorite verses because it really connects to an important theological point. But this is where so many of us stop reading. We stop reading here, but there's so much more because people think that, well, they just, Moses just went and told them, oh, I am sent me. That's actually not the whole story, right? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. And then verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all the ages. Now, what we need to understand is, is that in verse 15 here, God actually speaks out loud his own name. God speaks his name and, say, and says that this is the name that belongs to me. And by this name... I will be remembered throughout all generations forever. God said his personal name out loud to Moses here in verse 15. The problem is when we read the text in English, we miss it. We don't see it. Right? Because, because here's what we read. We read these words. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And in English, we don't see a proper name for God there. Like Sherman's a proper name, right? I'm a pastor. That's my title. Sherman's my name. When we read verse 15 in English, we don't see a proper name there. What we see are titles. We see God, which is Elohim. It's a title. We see the word um, Lord, which for us, we think it's a title. But guess what? That's actually not what that means. That's, that's actually not what it actually says. In fact, if you have your Bible with you, just take a look in your Bible at this, at this verse, 315. I want you to see how the word Lord here is actually spelled. You see, when you spell the word Lord in many parts of the Bible, it's capital L, lowercase o-r-d, which means Adonai, right? It means master or Lord. Well, 
if you'll notice in your Bible, for this word, this verse right here, it's capital L, small, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? This word actually in Hebrew doesn't mean Lord. It actually is an indication of God's divine and personal name written in Hebrew, which is Yahweh. When you see that, what that's referring to is Yahweh. That's what it means. When you see the word Lord written this way, it means in the original text, the word Yahweh. God's name is actually was in the text. Now, you might think, well, well, then then why, if if that's his name, why do we always say Lord and we never say Yahweh when we read the Bible? Well, that's a really long and complicated and strange kind of story. But let me just kind of give you the Cliff Notes version of it, okay? And the Cliff Notes version of the story is this. Between the testaments of the Old and New Testament, the intertestamental period, it's like a four to 500 year period, um, Jewish scribes were really struggling with, scribes and and, and Jewish um, priests were struggling with this idea that we don't have any temple, you know, life is hard. How do we worship God? And they begin, for some reason, to superstitiously believe that it's inappropriate to say the name of God. That's just, it just started like that. They started believing it's inappropriate for us to say the name of God. It's disrespectful to say God's name. Now, that's not something God ever said. God never said, hey, this is my name, but don't ever use it. Don't ever say my name. He never, he never says that. And so they start, they start deciding you know, that it's inappropriate to, to say God's name. And they actually outlawed it. They outlawed the verbal expression of the name of God or Yahweh. And so when they started transcribing the copies of the Old Testament scripture, they would write, they would not go ahead and write out all of God's name because they didn't want people to say it. And so what they actually end up doing was, is they would just write just the consonants of his name. If, we t- if you imagine, if you, if you just took all your name and took all the vowels out and wrote your name without vowels, that's what it's like. And they would write the, the letters Y-H-W-H instead of Yahweh. And the reader would know that that's God's divine personal name, but I'm not allowed to read it out loud. And so they felt it was wrong because it was God's name, right? In fact, if you today were invited, if you have a Jewish friend and they invite you to a synagogue, just don't say Yahweh in the synagogue because they will take you outside and they will, you will not be invited back because they still to this day believe it's wrong for you to say God's name. But if you are reading the text back then, what do you do, right? You know you're not supposed to say God's name, so what are you supposed to do? Do you just like read and then have a moment of silence when you have that and then just kind of skip over it or what, right? Well, they actually, they actually had a remedy for that. And what they would do is, is, is when you're reading through the name, they, they actually took the, um, the, the consonants for Yahweh and they took the vowels for another word called Adonai or Adonai, right? And they took the, the vowels out and put them in the, with the consonants and they created this hybrid word so that way people, when they're reading, their, reading, reading the scriptures, would know that this was the divine name of God, but I'm not allowed to say it. And so they would instead substitute the word Lord. That's why even in like Matthew's, um, Matthew's gospel, it's a very Jewish gospel. It doesn't say, if you notice like all the other gospels say the kingdom of God, but Matthew's doesn't. It says the kingdom of heaven. He's still saying the same thing, but he is a Jew and he won't say the word God, right? And so this is the same idea here. They, do, they, 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 they created this way in the text to refer to God 
but never to have to say his name. And so then when they translated the text, the tradition of writing Lord stuck in the Greek and also the Latin. And then guess what? Our English Bibles say Lord and every other translation says Lord, right? And so anytime you see this word Lord in capitals like this, what you're seeing is a translation of God's personal name, the name that he said, this is my name, Yahweh. Now, some of you, you know, might think, well, wait a minute, that's not God's personal name. God's personal name is Jehovah. No, it's not. Jehovah is a German transliteration of the combined consonants and vowels of the two different words. During the Middle Ages, scholars began to read the consonants YHWH with the vowels from Adonai, which resulted in the word Jehovah. It's an artificial word that really bears no relationship to the name of God. And because, because the Germans were really, really the first ones to, to do this, this scholarly work, and because in German, J's and W's are pronounced Y's and V's, we end up with the transliteration of Jehovah. So God's name is not Jehovah, it's Yahweh. Now, you call him Jehovah, it's not going to matter. He's still God. He knows who you're talking to. Now, why is this important? Well, this is important because of this conversation that God is having with Moses. Right? Moses... He's about to, you know, he's, he, you know, Moses says, if I go talk to these people, you're asking me to do a big thing. If I go talk to these people and say, I'm coming in your name, then, then what's the name that I'm going to tell them? What's the, how, how are they going to know it's really you? It's really the question. And, and so God says to him, I am who I am. He said, say to this people, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. Now, God said to Moses and the Israelites, he told them, he said to tell them two things. Right? And this is, this is so important for us to understand. He said two things. He says, tell them, I am, which is the Hebrew word, he Yah. I know you re- look at that and you go, I can't see hey there, but that's it. That's, that's hey okay? So he says, he says, tell them hey or I am. And then he says, tell them also Yahweh sent you, right? Yahweh. And what I, you don't notice in English is the word I am and the word Lord or Yahweh. Actually, if you can see here, they're actually almost identically the same word. They're from the exact same root. And they have, in essence, almost the exact same meaning. Hey, Yah, or I am, means I exist. It's the idea that, that, that of eternal existence, always in the present. God never says, I was. He says, I am. I exist. I am the eternally existing one when he says that. And then the name Yahweh literally means the one who exists, present tense, who is who eternally exists. Moses, what God said you sent sent you? Um, Yahweh, the one who exists, the eternally existing one. Now you might think, well, Sherman, that is cute. All right, great. So I learned something in Hebrew today. Fine, thanks very much. But really, what does it have to do with us knowing God? Well, actually, it has it has everything to do with knowing God. He said, what you need to understand is that Old Testament names were, were significant. They were full of meaning. Names were given to people and they, they, they actually reflected a person's nature or character. 
They were descriptive of a person's character. Like the name Jacob meant deceiver because Jacob was deceitful when he stole his brother's birthright. If you remember that story, right? How he you know, had to put on like, you know, hair on his arms and like pretend like he was his brother so his dad would bless him. He was a deceiver. So that's why God changed his name from Jacob to Israel when, when, when he finally accepted God's lordship in his life. N- n- names in the Old Testament meant something. Right? And so this was, was a, this was a compelling reason. There was a compelling reason of why God gave himself the name Yahweh. I mean, it, God could have named himself anything, right? He could have named himself the coolest possible name. And every parent in the whole world always tries to find the coolest, most unusual name spelled differently than everybody else, right? I mean, you have all kinds of like imagine and their names. I mean, when Kim named McKaylee McKaylee, Right? She really thought, literally, that no one else in the whole world had that name. And then she found out when she moved to Boron, there was already another McKaylee. Right? And people get all upset about that. Oh, they already have, you know. Well, the thing is, his names were, were important today, but they were really important back then. And God could have named himself whatever cool name he He could have even named himself, you know, Bob. I mean, I, I guess that could have been cool. But um, the reality is, is God could have named himself whatever he wanted to name himself. But instead, what he chose to name himself, what, the way he chose to reveal himself to Moses... Right? The way he chose to reveal his character to Moses was Yahweh. He was trying to communicate something about who he is. And what he was saying is when you go to those people, those Israelites, when they ask you, what's God's name? What I want you to tell them is this. He exists. He is. Period. End of story. That's all you need to know about me is he exists. He is. Who's the one that sent you? The ever-existing eternal one. That's the one that sent me. Because there's no other God like that. Right? Now, if this doesn't make sense to you, I want you to think about Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And what I want you to understand about this is is, is this phrase right here is all the world of theology right here. In the beginning, before there anything else was, anything else was made, God had already existed. He was already there. Nothing else was there. God was. There was no heaven. There was no earth. There was no angels. There was no universe. There was no emptiness. There was no quantum mechanics. Nothing, not even emptiness that you can't even imagine. But God was there. He exists because he is. It's the essence of his name. He is. As simple as that may be to say, it's a profound mystery and and complexity in that little phrase. God is. He never was. He is. Simply is. He is Yahweh. He's the one who exists. Now you might say, well, great. All right, now you're like really like hurting my head today. What does that mean? <clears throat> Why is this even important that he is? Well, it's important because all of our understanding about God begins with his truth. Everything that we know about God begins with his truth. In fact, John Piper in a devotion, he listed 10 reasons why this is important to understand. 10 things that God's name Yahweh means. If he is who he is. Number one, if Yahweh 
is who he is. And he eternally exists. And he has never had a beginning. Ever. Every child will ask the question, who made God? And every parent who is wise will say, nobody. God just simply is. He has always been. He has no beginning. Right? He was never born. He's never popped into existence. He was never created. He simply is. He has he is eternity himself. Number two, if he has no beginning, then he has, he will never end. If he did not come into being, then he will not go out of being. The most sure fact that you can possibly hold on to why you can trust God is he's never going anywhere. You understand that? He had no beginning, now he has no ending. He will never, and if he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, it's the same thing as saying, I'll never stop existing. God cannot be undone. He cannot be snuffed out of existence, even if we don't want to believe in him. God will never cease to be because he simply is. He is existence itself. Our existence, as real as it feels to us in this room right now, is but a shadow of the reality of his existence. Number three, God is absolute reality. There is no reality before him. There is no reality outside of him unless he wills it or makes it. He is all there ever was eternally. No space, no universe, no emptiness, only God. There is no reality. There is no dimension of time and space and existence possible without him. Number four, God is utterly independent. He depends on nothing to bring him into being. He depends on nothing to support him. He he depends on no one to counsel him or to make him what he is. God needs nothing. He doesn't need your love. He doesn't need your affection. He doesn't need your approval. God existed eternally in the past, totally complete and satisfied within himself. Right? God is complete, independent. Number five, everything that is not God, totally depends on God. The entire universe is utterly secondary. It came into being by God and stays in being moment by moment on God's decision to keep it going. The universe, the stars, the law of physics, your life, your plans for what you're going to do for lunch next. This, this message, when it will finally come to an end, is dependent upon God. All things hold together and move and have their being in him. The very next breath that comes out of you is dependent upon God's will for that to to be that way. Number six, all the universe, by comparison to God, is is nothing. Contingent, dependent reality is to absolute, independent reality is as a shadow to substance. It's an echo to thunder. All that we're amazed by in this world and the galaxies and its complexity compared to God is nothing. The universe is 96 billion, the the known universe, what we can see, the observable universe, is 96 billion light years across and it's still nothing compared to God. It's It's like a tiny little LED light compared to the sun. 
Number seven, God is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot be improved. He is not becoming anything. He didn't become something. He is who he is. He always has been who he is. Which means he's not growing. He is not changing. He's never been born. He has always been Yahweh. Number eight, God is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty. There is no law book by which he looks to to know what's right. There is no almanac to establish facts. There's no guild which determines excellence in, in, in beauty. He himself is the standard of what is right and what is true and what is beautiful, which means God is who he is regardless of how you feel about it. God's standard for justice is completely righteous even though you don't like the idea of hell. God's standard for sexual ethics find their validity in who he is regardless of how you feel about it. God is the very standard of truth. Number nine, God does whatever he pleases and is always right and is always beautiful and always accords with the truth. All reality is outside of him and he created and designed and governed as absolute real as the as the absolute reality. So he ultimately is free from any constraints that don't originate from the counsel of his own will. Again, what you think about God is irrelevant. What you feel about his commands is meaningless. What you feel about God's sovereignty is pointless. God is entirely sovereign. And he always does what he wants to do. And it's always good. Number 10, God's eternal existence means that he is the most important and the most valuable reality and person in the universe. He is more worthy of interest and attention and admiration and enjoyment than all other realities, including the entire universe. The most important person in all of the universe is God. Therefore, the most important person in your life, the most important person in your world ought to be God. That's why your purpose is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. There is no other place that you are going to get fulfillment. He is the greatest and most important reality and person that's ever existed. So that's what Yahweh means. That's the implication of his name. Just his name. We even talked about his attributes. He has never had a beginning. He will never end. He absolutely is reality. He is utterly independent. Everything else depends on him. All the universe by comparison is nothing. He is, com- he is constant. He's the absolute standard for truth and goodness and beauty. Whatever he does, he, he does whatever he pleases and it's always right. And God is the most important, most valuable reality and person in the universe. That is God. That is who God is. That is Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim. God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. Now, is that all there is to God? Not even close. Not even close. In fact, we're going to spend the next several weeks really spending some time all the way up to Easter looking and discovering who God is. We're going to really dig deep and grow in our understanding and our love for God. And we're going to learn a lot about him like we have today. But understand, no matter what we learn, we're not going to exhaust how much there is to know about God. Because as we've seen, just by his name, he's bigger and more wondrous and more incredible than we can possibly imagine. He is beyond the limits of our ability to fully grasp and comprehend him. 
which means we tend, which means we will get to spend the rest of our life and all eternity learning more about him, basking in his wonder and his majesty. But here's the important part that I want you to take home. Okay. This is the part that really the rubber meets the road for you. And I want you to like really take this in. This God that he revealed himself as Yahweh, as he appeared to Moses, this God that rescued the nation of Israel out of bondage, who performed incredible miracles, this God who is existence and reality itself and is beyond your ability to truly grasp him, this God, Yahweh, loves you. Yes, even you. He loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, God in the flesh. He sent his son to the earth to live the perfect life that you couldn't live, to fulfill the law that you couldn't fulfill. And then, after fulfilling that, he suffered on your behalf to take the sins that you rightfully own to the cross. And more than that, he actually sent his son to bear on the cross the unimaginable wrath of God the Father, the wrath of God that can't even fit within inside our head, the excruciating wrath of God that we rightly deserved. Jesus had that poured out on him. And then in turn, Jesus gave to us his righteousness so that we then are no longer God's enemies. We are his beloved children. And three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, proving that he is what he said he was, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do. Save us from our sins. That's what Yahweh did. That's what God, the Lord, did. Yahweh, the eternally existing one, the one who never changes, sacrificed and paid a price that's so unimaginable by the blood of Christ, right? As, as the word says, he was, he was pleased to crush him so that you and I could be set free from the penalty of our sin. And not just that, but also we can be free from the power of sin in our lives, that we can progressively overcome the sin that stains us. And then one day that we will gloriously, that we will be free from the presence of sin, where we will forever and ever and ever, together with the ones that we love in Christ, stand face to face with this God, who is existence itself, worshiping him, learning more about him, standing forever in awe and wonder where there will be no more tears or no more pain or no more sorrow or no more death where all these things have passed away. That's the promise of Yahweh, the one who exists, the one who says, I am who I am. Will you put your trust in him? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, please, Lord, allow us to take this to heart. Please allow us to scale the heights. Please help us to get past our puny little images of you, Lord. Those little bobblehead type images of you. 
or just caricatures of you. Help us, Lord, to shed those things. Help us to put those things away. Help us to come and embrace who you are. You have told us your name. And in your name, you've revealed your character to us. The great I am, the transcendent God of the universe. A God so big that you can't even fit inside my own head. Lord, I dare not reduce you down to my own imagination. Father, help me to keep my eyes fixed on you. Help me to to stand in this, this awesome majesty that you are beyond my ability to even fathom. Help me, Lord God, to always remember how great and big and glorious and magnificent and holy you are, Father God. Help me to see that. But Lord, let me not just stay there and focus just on that because I might be tempted to lose sight of you and think that you're too far away and too big for me. Help me to also remember that as big and great you are, you have also decided, Lord God, to be my friend, to be close to me, to come and live inside of me, to come be with me. You have decided to be my personal God, to know me, to pay for my sins. You're my my friend. But Lord, don't let me just sit there either because I might, as your friend, begin to take you for granted and forget about how great and glorious you are. Lord, help me to keep both of these things in my mind all the time, that you are the great transcended I am, the greatest reality there is, the most important person in the universe, but at the same time you've chosen to call me your friend and to be close to me and to be with me and never to leave me or forsake me. Lord, let us all, Father God, develop a picture of you that way where we are continually worshiping your name and reverent before you, but at the same time experiencing the love and the closeness of our best friends, Father. Help us to walk in that. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us to be shaped by that. Help us, Lord God, then to go out of this place and share the hope that we have in Christ, the gospel, that you, by your grace, have loved us in spite of us. And that hope is found by trusting in Jesus. Help us to walk out of the doors today and to storm the gates of hell and to tell people about the love of Christ that we have and why we love him so much and why they need to love him too. I pray, Father, that you would meet people's needs here in this place, that you would touch their lives and hearts today, that, Father, whatever need be met, that you would meet it and you would help people to see you for who you are, glorious and radiant, Father. I love you, Lord. I praise you. We pray that you glorify what we say and do today. Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.